with entomology, I think I think the the most interesting thing is that there's just so many uh, species out there doing so many things that basically you can do just about anything you want. You can study just about anything you want in entomology, and I've I've found that to be the case where people in other departments they may be an ecologist and that's their main focus, but their model organism is say a uh, an insect. Uh, and so insects and other arthropods do so many different things that I think if you want to, you know, you know, just in that spitting spider, you could, you could look about, you know, you could research what do they actually eat, how they interact with their environment, uh, physiology, um, how they, how they behave, how they, uh, what's, you know, anything about their venom, you know, they're just this whole kind of universe in this little tiny critter. Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. Today on the podcast, we are really excited to welcome Dr. Matt Bertone, the director of the Plant Disease and Insect Clinic at NC State. Welcome, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for spending your time with us today. Um, And today co-hosting with me is Dr. Monique Rivera from the entomology department here at UC Riverside. So Matt, um, as a director and a diagnostic entomologist at the Plant Disease and Insect Clinic, what does your work entail day to day? Yeah, so so I became director last year in 2019. um, And before that, I was just the diagnostic entomologist in the clinic. uh, And Basically, what we do is we are a service-based lab. We don't do research, really, although some research projects come out of work we do there. Um, And what we are is a a diagnostic lab for the state. And so people, anybody can submit samples of plants or insects to us, and we can tell them uh, what's going on with it. Or if we don't know, we can involve specialists who can help us with that. And so we have a couple of uh, very good plant pathologists in the, in the lab and a lot of diseases to plants come in. But um, for any insect pests or critters that come in, I'm the one who does the identifications. Okay, awesome. Do you see any particular type of insect the most or do you see like everything across the board? Yeah, so we deal with uh, insects and mites mostly. Those are the most common things. Um, I would say when we tally it together, I'd say uh, scale insects, uh, aphids, and spider mites, of course, are very common, uh, commonly submitted for ID. Um, but we get a lot of household critters also, so some uh, nuisance flies, stored product pests, uh, and whatnot. But it's, it's hard to say. Every year, it, it seems to change. And when you're IDing these insects, are you mostly just looking at their morphology, like under a microscope, or do you have to do other sorts of things like genetic identification or anything? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I mostly do morphology. I'm almost exclusively morphology. Um, If it becomes uh, uh, to a point where we have to identify, say it's a federal threat or something like that, then, and I don't know, then we would send it off somewhere. We also have the capabilities and actually do it very often for plant pathogens, which are very often identified through molecular diagnostics. Uh, But for the insects and the critters, typically um, 
I'll just run it through key or look at photos or, or figure it out from there. And if it's something a little bit more difficult or they have a very specific question, um, I often enlist the help of some other experts or send it to federal uh, labs to do identifications. And are these insects usually dead whenever they're sent to you or do people give you live insects too? It depends. Um, I, I do like the live ones sometimes because they, uh, and we only accept live uh, insects from in-state. Uh, anything from out-of-state has to be dead and we do accept out-of-state samples. Um, but um, I, I like them when they're alive because I can often, if there's something interesting to me, I can take photos of it um, or I can rear it out. Uh, if it's on plant material, and get a number of the life stages and things like that. But it's it's a hodgepodge. Uh, you know, some things also come in and they're on the the plant is diseased or has other issues, but the pathologist notice that there's some kind of critter on it, and they'll send it over to me, uh, and we'll both kind of tag team those those uh, those samples. So, what insects right now are sort of hot on your radar? I mean, I know spotted lanternfly is probably on its way, but you guys don't have that yet, right? Yeah, we don't have that yet, fortunately. But it will—it's only a matter of time. This, there's no doubt we're going to get it. Um, it's—it's it's been moving south, but luckily, it's been kind of restricted to Northern Virginia now. So we've got a little ways to go, but uh, because they lay their eggs on, you know, even trucks and trains they can move pretty readily. So spotted lanternfly is one that we're on the lookout for uh, that's not yet in the state. Uh, Asian longhorn beetle is also another because they just found it in Charleston, South Carolina. So it jumped from basically the northeastern part of the lake states down to a population now that's established there. And so we're really worried about it because it's so close now. Um, those are the two that are major that are, uh, you know, not found in our state, but others are spreading in the state. Uh, we have red bear ambrosia beetle that's killing uh, bay laurels and other things, sassafras. Um, and that's expanding in the state, as is emerald ash borer, which is pretty common around the state now. And then um, things like crape myrtle bark scale, which is uh, came first into Texas about a decade ago or so. and and has now crept through the southeast, and we, we have uh, several counties that have it now in North Carolina. It's a very common plant, planted in people's yards too, so people are pretty worried about it. So why would you say identification services are vital for both pest management and scientific research? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's uh, something we kind of always have to consider. Um, it's really important because getting the, the pest ID correct uh, is basically the basis for everything else. Uh, if you need to go in the literature and find out anything about its life cycle, number of generations per year, control strategies and resistance, uh, biological control and enemies, uh, really all that is based on a good ID at first. Um, you know, there's lots of practical exa examples. For instance, you know, we've had times where all these caterpillar-like critters were eating a tree and they sprayed BT on it and it did nothing. And that's because they're sawflies. And sawflies are a completely different order of insects, as you know. And uh, they don't, they're not affected by the, the product that the people were using it because they were confused about the ID. It, it, they spent time not being able to treat it and trees get defoliated, things like that. Um, and just uh, you know, knowing if something's supposed to be somewhere or not. Uh, you know, if you have two lookalikes, 
uh, in an area, one is native and one's not, it's good to know which one may be invasive or something like that. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, the ID is, is really important. Um, and, and you can think of lots of others, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So what is the best thing about your job day to day? Oh, it's, it's, it's great. I love my job. And I, I, I wonder why not everybody wants to go into it, but some people really don't <laughs> like taxonomy or IDing things and things like that. And I just can't understand it, but, um, it's every day is a new mystery, but there's something new. Um, you know, there are lots of mundane things, which I, I never really get tired of identifying things, even just people texting me photos or, or whatnot. But, um, you know, there may be something new that comes in that's really interesting. It could be really important. Uh, we get in new species to North Carolina every year, um, even to the U.S. sometimes. Uh, and in our lab, again, we do both uh, plant diseases and uh, arthropod pests. So uh, we, we have these things coming in all the time and identifying them, and we're first responders for those things. Um, but also just anything, something that's native and there's an interesting biology attached to the, the note. You know, somebody says they found this doing something and it's really interesting or it's a very rare species. Uh, I get to see those often, uh, without ever having to leave the lab. And so it's, it's, uh, it's always a nice, a fun mystery. And, and honestly, it's a lot like, uh, Dr. House MD. It's like you would get all the weirdest <laughs> stuff. Uh-huh. So luckily I don't have to deal with all the common stuff all the time, but some of the things are really interesting problems. So who or what kind of inspired you to take this uh, sort of career path? Um, I know insect ID can be, you know, I think it's really intimidating for a lot of entomology grad students, but at the same time, uh, I absolutely see what you're saying about this is really fun. You know, you're always doing something new, but it's definitely not, you know, maybe the number one career path that people would think of or consider. Yeah, I, you know, I think part of it is that there may not be as many jobs, uh, apparently, but there, there are several jobs. There are lots of jobs out there, especially for the federal government. Um, they're not always in the best places. They're often in port cities or places around where there's a lot of uh, commerce uh, going through. So port IDs are really important to catch them before they come into the U.S. Um, but I've always... Um, Basically, I've always been interested in the diversity of arthropods and most invertebrates and even animals. Um, and it's really just the different forms and biologies has been the most interesting thing to me. And I, uh, you know, I was, I got my degrees and postdocs and was kind of trained to be a regular tenure track professor, but it was not as appealing to me as kind of looking at the insects and things like that all the time. Um, I'm not the best with money. I'm not good at budgeting things. I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to kind of just sit in an office and manage people to look at the insects because I'd be missing my favorite part of it. So when this opportunity came up, it was, it was, it was great. So my predecessor had been working in the clinic for 38 years, uh, David Steffen. He's a amazing entomologist. He knows so much about all these different insects and he's really easy to talk to. He helps a lot with some, sometimes when there's groups that he's more um, an expert in or, or more interested in. And we talk a lot. And uh, he was coming upon retirement and they asked me if I would like to take over his position. And, and even though it wasn't as high powered or high paying as, as say a tenure track position, the, uh, the appeal of the job was basically being able to help people with my skills. 
And so that's, that's kind of the best part of it actually is that, you know, I get to do what I love, but I also get to help people. Um, and so it's, it's a win-win. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I think that's like what we could all hope for, for our careers, you know? So I'm obviously not an insect diagnostician, but I do entomology things and people always are sending me photos of insects to ID and they're always blurry. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell what, I'm like, I could tell you the order of that maybe. <laughs> and I know you do a lot of really beautiful macro photography, which listeners can see on your Twitter page. And there's also a link to your Flickr page from your Twitter page. So yeah, do you do that as a hobby or for your job or both? Yeah, so um, again, with the, the whole kind of morphology and diversity of forms, I've always been very visually oriented. Uh, in fact, if I hadn't gone into entomology, I was really interested in graphic design and things like that. I was I was always doodling and drawing and and stuff. And then um, when digital cameras came out, I was really interested in in getting better photos. And then uh, some really big insect photographers like Alex Wild and Nikki Bay and, and a couple others were posting things, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they were getting really great results in these really beautiful photos. And when I saw those, I was like, I, I've got to figure out how to do this myself. And so I can always have my own photos for talks and I can um, share them with people. And it's, you know, yeah, the blurry pictures are kind of heartbreaking uh, for you when you get them and they're just a mess, you know, for diagnostics, as long as you can tell what it is, that's all that matters. But um, for me, I like to try and capture the, the beauty of, of insects and other critters, especially ones that people don't normally appreciate. Yeah. Do you have any tips for people on how to take better insect photos? Like I know everyone doesn't have a great macro setup because uh, that oftentimes takes like special equipment, but for someone with just like maybe a regular phone camera, what can people do to like make sure that they're taking better photos, both from the cells or if they're going to like send them to you to be diagnosed? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a, you know, I teach uh, photography courses every once in a while and, and talk to mm. people about photography. Uh, you know, I think the first thing to do is know what you want to get out of your photo. Do you want it to be really artistic? Do you want it to be just a nice regular photo or, or is it a diagnostic photo? Uh, there's different, you know, different things you can do to make each of those uh, come out the best. Um, for diagnostic photos, you know, lighting is the the biggest key to everything. So making sure you've got good light um, and your settings are right for that lighting. Now, if it's a phone, of course, that your phone's going to probably choose a lot of that for you. You can always get uh, little magnifying glasses uh, and clip on things for phones, and that can help. Um, but you know. Uh, you know, one thing is the kind of the angle you, you take the mat. Is it going to be eye level with them? Is it going to be above them? They can have different effects on how the photo looks. Like if you're, it would be like if you're eye level with that insect versus just hovering over top. Um, for diagnostics, it's good to take uh, photos of the top, the side and the bottom of the insect, the underside of the insect, because there's going to be information on all those, um, all those parts making sure that it's in focus, uh, obviously, but it's not obvious to everybody, I guess. And uh, oftentimes I say that, you know, you want to get up as close as you can where it's still in focus and zoomed out, but in focus is much better than zoomed in and out of focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's for diagnostics, but um, 
just uh, you know playing with lighting and different settings, um, and uh, and then depending on when you want to take the next step to more expensive setups. But even then, um, phones aren't the best because you can't put a lot of things on them or use flashes. But you can buy from some fairly inexpensive uh, camera setups and using a flash to control your light. And you can get really good results for not, not as much money as you think. I love looking at beautiful insect photos. And there's also that thing that people do where they do the stack focus, mm-hmm. or I think that's what it's called, which I've always wanted to try to do that, although I don't really have the setup to do that. So that's where like you take a very small focus slice of the insect and then you slowly move the camera through the insect essentially yep. so you get the whole entire thing in focus. But yeah, that's really cool. Do you do that? Yeah, so I do. Um, I, I don't do it much with my handheld. So you can do it handheld where as long as you're on the right plane, uh, as long as you don't angle the camera any bit and you take a couple photos of the different uh, focal depths, you can use software to stitch all those together. Uh, it's typically called Z-stacking because that's the Z-axis, the up and down. Um, but for specimens uh, and those photos, I have a really good setup at the lab that I put together myself um, that uh, I've taken really cool pictures using that because the things like microscope uh, objectives and other lenses have a really shallow depth of field. You, it only has a little slice and focus. And so what you do is exactly what you said. You take a photo from the top to the bottom, you take multiple photos, and then you, uh, it stitches together all of the uh, focused areas together so you can see it. Do people uh, request the photos for use in you know, presentations and ID courses and that kind of thing? Yeah, so um, people will request uh, um, existing photos, and I enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out how to take a good photo of, of different types of critters. Um, it has been a little frustrating in the last few weeks trying to get these because I haven't been in the lab as much because I'm at home most of the time, um, and when I go in, I don't have as much time as I want. You know, once the good thing about the photos is once you have them, that's it. I don't really need to do that again for this species uh, unless some crazy new technology comes out that I need to change up. Mm-hmm. Okay, Matt, what insect best describes you? Oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Um, or what's your favorite insect? Oh, that's a tough one too. <laughs> so tough. Every, di- every day is something different. Let's do what's my latest yeah. favorite. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many crazy ones. Um, my go-to is uh, probably phantom crane flies are one of my favorites. Ooh, they're, yeah. they're a really weird group for my dissertation work. They're, they're just a really weird lineage of flies. It's not really related to anything else. And uh, they're just so cool looking when you see them. I would still love to collect some larvae. Larvae live in uh, really kind of mucky areas where it's like water over you know, mud. And they're kind of a, they're long worm-like creatures that have a rat tail, um, and so they're they're really weird looking. Um, but uh, the adults of some species, especially the uh, the really crazy black and white ones, are just when they fly, they just look amazing. Um, there's some really great videos online of them, uh, you know, dancing around kind of. Oh, I'm um, gonna have to look that up. Yeah. There's lots of great flies out there. You know, flies are one of my favorite because they're the most, probably one of the most underappreciated groups. Um, mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
What did you study for your dissertation? Yeah, so um, so for my dissertation, uh, I actually switched around a lot. That's actually one of the reasons why I kind of came into what I do now because I'm fairly generalist when it comes to everything. Um, so for my master's, I actually studied uh, dung beetles and cattle pastures in North Carolina. Uh, mm-hmm. So trapped them and, and looked at the diversity and seasonality of them uh, in two different regions and compared them. Um, for my dissertation, I worked on the molecular phylogenetics uh, of the lower diptera, so what people call nematocera, which are the the gnats and midges and mosquitoes and crane flies, stuff like that, the kind of gangly legs to real fragile flies. Mm. And uh, that basically looking at um, how the families were related to each other using uh, DNA sequences. And that was a really, that opened my eyes to flies and really learned a lot about them. And uh, is a really, really amazing group. Um, and so that was, that was my dissertation work. And I also worked on crane flies a bit. Uh, looking at the, again, their relationships within the group. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, those are my, that is my uh, uh, graduate degrees. So flies are notoriously, in every taxonomy course I've ever taken, considered the hardest to ID. I think for beginners, you know, it's just so much about those hair patterns, you know. <laughs> it, it really is. I, yeah, people, the kids. I know the students really, uh, they really groan every time you start doing the fly stuff. And I can see why they're, they're tough. A lot of the midges and the little, some of the flies are just really fragile. And if they're not collected well, uh, or prepared well, then they, they're just shriveled up on a point and you can't see anything, no matter how much your you know, how good your key is. Um, and yeah, then you get into the fly, the other flies where, yeah, you're looking at, you know, parts of the wing, you know, breaks in the wing, the hairs on the legs and hairs in the body and it's 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 one of those things where i think um it's overwhelming at first but if you have a good key um and you have a good specimen i think once you know where everything is they're actually fairly uh they're pretty pretty straightforward when it comes to id uh but it is daunting at first and i know a lot of people just give up uh but i also am not that type of person i like i like the challenge of these things so all the groups that I like are typically the ones that are more hard to ID. Like I'm really into flies and mites and thrips and scale insects. And, you know, I enjoy the things you have to slide mount and look at the really tiny structures on and stuff. So whereas dragonflies and butterflies, I, I can't tell you any of them really. (laughs) (laughs) What about uh, immatures? Because that was another always like, I avoided taking that class in undergrad because I was just like, oh my God, that's going to be awful. Uh, do you have to do a lot of immature ID too, or do you just depend on rearing them out to the adult stage? Yeah, so uh, I actually really like immatures too. I've, I've wanted to teach an immature taxonomy class, and that's again because they're, they're really um, they're really underappreciated, and I can't believe that, no, that many of the universities don't even have courses on them since they're the they're the stage that's doing a lot of damage and you know, it's often more easy to collect. And you're right, you'd have to rear them out oftentimes if you couldn't tell what they were. Um, with certain caterpillars, I, you know, they're tough because they have no keys to them. And so I do often try to rear them out because the adults are much easier to ID than, than the larvae. You know, I could tell probably what family it's in uh, by the keys, but if they need to know what kind of species or whatever, 
unless there's a definite host relationship, so you know there's only one type of caterpillar that would be on a certain plant, that's easy. But if it's lots of them, then then I do rear them out. But otherwise, um, I just I'm really interested in larval identification too. So I try and go as far as I can um, with what I have and key them out too. Um, and then um, if it's something that may be more difficult, I, I'll rear them out. So when you were a kid, were you just always collecting insects and looking at them, or did you get into this later in life? Yeah, this was something when I was when I was little. Uh, mm-hmm. three or five years old or so my parents will tell you um i even have a really a funny uh, drawing we have framed up in up in our house where uh in my kindergarten class i drew a microscope and said i'd look at bugs all day which i do so it's mm-hmm. i don't know how often that happens with people but um but yeah i was always out you know i was born in new york city uh not you know it was we had a tree in our yard so it wasn't like the city city but um there was stuff around and, and I remember collecting them, but I've always been into reading about them and looking for them outside. Um, I would collect, uh, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and uh, I would collect, collect uh, uh, wolf spiders and pretend they were tarantulas because I loved the desert and I loved all mm. those big creepy critters, but uh, we didn't have them in Pennsylvania. Although now I know uh, one of the coolest ones, one of my favorite spiders of all time the uh, the only uh, uh, purse web spider in the genus Atypus is known uh, in the U.S. is only known from the Philadelphia area, uh, which is really crazy. Oh um, wow! There's another genus that that's more widespread, but this this one genus of purse web spider where they lay lay lie in wait in these uh, tubes, these silken tubes that go run along the ground or run along the bases of trees, and they sit inside. And when an insect crawls on it, they they just they kind of shove their huge fangs. The fangs are about half the length of the body almost. Oh they shove God. their huge fangs out of the tube and grab the critter, the the prey and bring it inside. Um, and when I learned that they were only that that genus was only found around Philadelphia, I was like really sad <laughs> when I moved away. You were so excited. I feel like that's not as normal for kids to be super into spiders. I feel like it's more <laughs> normal for kids to like insects, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always like, I, I think I would have become an arachnologist, actually, if there was more, uh, you know, more people and more things that they, you know, they get a job with. Because I always like scorpions and spiders were like my favorite when I was younger. Um, <laughs> venomous things, anything, you know, venomous snakes. I was really into reptiles, too. And yeah. That's so funny. So are spiders easier yeah. to ID? It depends. Some some are really uh, really distinct. Others are much more difficult. Um, it, it really depends on the spider. Uh, in fact, I'm wearing Thomas Shahan's spider face uh, uh, t-shirt right now. Oh my god! Um, and uh, yeah, so some are some are pretty straightforward. Others, uh, like a lot of the ground spiders, a lot of the sack spiders, uh, can be difficult, especially from photos. Um, and even in, in in hand, you gotta you gotta kind of look at some really little characteristics. So, you know, just like with other, you know, even other group, groups of insects, uh, it some things are really distinct. Others are really difficult. Do you have any pet spiders or insects? We have plenty of spiders in the house. <laughs> uh, I read an article a couple of years ago that became pretty popular. My neighbors were like, "Oh, you have spiders in your house? You keep them?" I'm like. 
yeah, they're not bothering anybody. There, there are a lot of cellar spiders and some uh, false uh, black widows, false widow spiders. Uh, we don't have any live spiders in the uh, like pet spiders in the house right now. Uh, we have do do have some pet cockroaches, uh, and a pet gecko and two dogs. So that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to not disturb the spiders in my house. You know, if they're on me. It's like okay. Time to move, but yeah. <laughs> if they're just like in the corner, it's usually fine. And they also help control ants getting into the house and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. So I like them for that reason. Yeah, um, they leave me alone, and uh, we, yeah. we have a lot in our basement. We have a finished because uh, that's where I'm right now. Uh, where we have a finished basement, but they still take up residence everywhere. And we have lots of all the different stages. We've got mothers that are about to lay eggs. We have ones with eggs and ones with babies and, and all this stuff. Cute. It's a shame I don't, we don't have spitting spiders in my house. So that's my favorite, one of my favorite spiders. And they can actually be common in some houses. I don't think I know what that is. Spitting yeah. spiders? Yeah, they're really cool. That was another one when I was younger. I read about them. And I was like, ooh, someday I'll find one. And I was over at my friend, Michelle, who, uh, Michelle Troutline, who's actually the fly curator up at the California Academy of Sciences. Uh, she and I did our PhDs together. I was over at her house and out from behind one of her, uh, the, the switch plates of her light, there was a little gap and out crawled this spitting spider. It's really <laughs> big for a spitting spider, but it's not that big for a spider. And I was like, oh my God, this is my first one I've ever seen in nature or out in the wild or ever. Um, but they're really cool. They are actually very close relatives of brown recluses, um, the spitting spider family, uh, Scytodidae. Um, and they, so they're six-eyed spider, but they have this, uh, there's actually one on this shirt. It's, which one is it? It's right here. So they have this okay. big dome-like head. The head of the cephalothorax is as big as the abdomen or bigger. And that's because in their head, they have uh, venom gland, or they have uh, silk glands also. So they have silk glands that attach to their venom glands. And so they're the only spider that can spin silk out of its front and back. And what they do is they actually have holes in the front of their fangs that they eject the silk that's actually venomous silk onto their prey. And it wow. wraps it up a little bit. And then and it's, it's super fast. The hole to spit a strand that takes, uh, it's quicker than a blink of an eye and, and, and everything. It's really, really fast. And so then they've got these dainty little fangs and they're very delicate and they walk over once the thing is kind of, uh, immobilized and then they bite it and feed on it. And so they can take down prey bigger than themselves sometimes. And this is really cool spiders and that whole spitting thing is really cool. That's so cool. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. And when you say spitting spider, most people, uh, are really afraid. I think that's crazy. Uh, but they are very delicate little spiders. And, uh, and we did find some in our study of homes and I've actually kept them. You know, you can find them, you'll find them every once in a while, just hanging out. Um, the mothers carry their eggs around with them, uh, on, underneath the, in their jaws. And then when they hatch, um, the little spiderlings go off and do their thing. Oh my gosh. So cute. Okay, so what advice would you give to someone interested in becoming an entomologist or arachnologist? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I I would say, you know, just have a love and respect for uh, uh, nature, and I think that's most people have. Uh, Don't, you know, you you don't have to uh, specifically study any one group. I think pick what you're interested in and 
and there's going to be plenty of things. You know, basically, you can pick any type of any species or group, and you're going to find really interesting things about them and things nobody knows and things that should be studied. Um, and then it really depends on what you're really interested in. So for me, I, again, I kind of over the years I identified that um, you know the form and morphology and, and the biology are the most important things that uh, that I'm interested in: diversity and taxonomy. But some people are really, uh, I'm not really an ecologist, but a lot of people are ecologists who do a lot of modeling and understanding how these creatures interact with other creatures and uh, other organisms and, and their habitats. Um, but basically just, you know, reading a lot, uh, you know, I, I always used to read a lot of books. There was no internet back when I was growing up, of course. Uh, so I got all the books I could and just went through them and just read everything I could about them. Um, so I had a big head start and then, but nowadays, you know, go to online resources or, um, find your local entomologists and talk to them. And basically just know that with entomology, I think, I think the, the most interesting thing is that there's just so many uh, species out there doing so many things that basically you can do just about anything you want. You can study just about anything you want in entomology. And I've, I've found that to be the case where people in other departments, they may be an ecologist and that's their main focus, but their model organism is, say, a uh, an insect. Uh, and so insects and other arthropods do so many different things that I think if you want to, you know, you know, just in that spitting spider, you could you could look about, you know, you could research what do they actually eat, how they interact with their environment, uh, physiology, um, how they how they behave, how they uh, what you know anything about their venom. Yeah, you know, they're just this whole kind of universe in this little tiny crater. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing about entomology. Well, really any science field, but entomology in particular. I've talked to a lot of young people who are looking to get into entomology and they often say like, oh, well, what is there to study? All mm -hmm. the questions seem to be taken. And I definitely fell into that group too at one point in my life. And I think like people don't realize there's so much we don't know. It's like an endless amount of information that we don't know anything about and like insects too in terms of IDing them like there's so many species out there too that like we just don't even know exist and so and the vast majority of them are understudied anyway it's only like the model organisms that are really really well studied um so yeah i i agree with that message to our listeners there is plenty of room for everyone <laughs> and we have way more to learn and do than all the entomologists on earth right now could ever cover so <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely yeah especially in taxonomy i mean just just describing the species out there because we know that there are uh, millions of more species out there and you know if you're looking into the study to describe butterflies it's probably not as easy, you know, especially in say North America. But if you wanted to work on mites, then it's wide open. I mean, there's so much out there, uh, but it's kind of getting people to even realize that these things exist, let alone be interested in them. But um, there, there are people out there that would be, so. Right, right. And yeah, just describing species is baseline knowledge that's really helpful for all the other studies that come after that about species interactions and ecology and genomics and whatever. Like, it's really hard to do 
a study on a species without having like just the basic information about its morphology, where it lives, what it likes to eat, its life history. So that stuff, I think people definitely take for granted or overlook, um, but that's really important science too. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, there's, you know, just going out and observing things. A lot of people these days, I know I don't have as much time to just sit out in nature. I'm always emailing or doing stuff online or whatnot, but just sitting out and looking for things on plants and seeing what they do and just knowing what's out there is is huge thing you can do. And once you do know a little bit more about it, then you realize uh, that there are things you can do. In fact, my my favorite thing in the last few years, one of my favorite things was um, I, uh, it was a Memorial Day weekend. It was my birthday weekend, uh, a few years ago. And I got home for the, to start this long weekend. I was really happy. And the, our viburnum was flowering and it was really attracting a lot of cool things. And I was sitting out there next to where my wife's garden is. And, you know, we're just chatting and I look over on the flowers and I was like, Oh, that's a, that's an interesting look, looking fly. And uh, I was like, huh. So I ran in and grabbed my camera, took some photos, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is Ligisterina. And you're probably like, what is that thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And most people don't know. Even dipterists, even fly people don't really know. So I was like, that's Ligisterina. And most people might think it's a uh, mosquito or just a gnat. I mean, it is a gnat, technically. It's a fungus gnat. But it's a very rarely collected one. Uh, in fact, um, before it was described from several hundred specimens from Malaysia traps in the 1970s, 1979, I think, it was only known from like four specimens. A couple from Raleigh, though, which was really interesting. Um, so I saw them, I'm like, oh, this is great. And I was looking. So I spent the entire weekend, uh, to the dismay of my wife, outside, running outside, documenting them. And I was able to publish a paper on it because, first of all, this was the host records. First of all, many people beforehand had only presumed that they were uh, nectar feeders because they have a really long capacitance. They're really, they're really cool. After I tell, tell you all about this, I'll show you a picture of them because they're really neat flies. <laughs> um, we only have one species supposedly in the southeast, although people think they may be a cryptic species group. Nobody has ever found a larva of one of this group of flies, and they're all around the world, a few species here and there, and some species that are prehistoric and amber and everything. Uh, but I was able to document it on a non-native host, uh, so an exotic plant is a, an ornamental plant. And also, uh, I saw it at a friend's Memorial Day party uh, on their hydrangea. So I was able to collect specimens from two different new hosts and also uh, saw the mating, which is probably the first time anybody's seen that. And got pho- I didn't get photos. It flew off before I got photos. And was able to record, you know, how long they were feeding for, how long they were active, when they were active during the day. And just that, you know, of course, somebody else looking at that might think, oh, there's just mosquitoes on my plant. Or there's just right. little flies. What good are they? But because I, was, I had that inf- prior information, I was able to say, okay, this is a special fly. This is really interesting and actually contribute knowledge. And then the next year I was able to send a number of specimens to a lab in, um, in Eastern Europe that was doing uh, RNA analysis on it. And they needed fresh specimens and because these were so rare, it was difficult to get them or to know where to get them. The guy actually traveled to Southeast Asia, you know, lots and lots of money and got like two specimens. And I was able to send him two dozen specimens because I knew where to get them right in my front yard. 
So it just knowing these things and, you know, them being cited. Now I did have to drop plans. I had to, you know, <laughs> my, my wife had to look over the, after the kids more than I, <laughs> that weekend. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so, but it was, it was a really fun thing and it was, it was really cool to get new pictures and new data on them. And just from, just from accidentally being out there. So yeah. you never know what you're going to discover. That's so exciting. And happy birthday to you, you know. <laughs> it, was, like, it was probably the best, best birthday. birthday gift. <laughs> <laughs> I know. If you told somebody, yeah, uh, fungus gnats would be your best birthday gift, then you'd, you're like, oh, you're really a special strange. type of person. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> no, I get it. That's awesome. I'm sort of obsessed with this idea that spiders are a real force in biological control and there's just nobody that's crossing that boundary you know what I mean into spiders to really kind of address that fully yeah I mean uh, so I think there's a good bit of literature out there just showing how much you know biomass they feed on and how you know I think you could put together a lot of different studies like how much they can feed on each spider how many are out in fields um a colleague of mine, Chris Buttle, up in um, up in um, uh, McGill. He's in McGill. Yeah, he's in McGill. He's up in Canada. He actually did a study uh, about spiders in fields, and also showed that even just their silk on plants deters uh, uh, pests. Mm-hmm. So these these organisms know the silk. You know, maybe it has a smell or whatnot, and they know if there's silk around, there could be a spider. And obviously, that's not good news. So even just having silk on a leaf um, deters uh, feeding on those leaves. So yeah, spiders are really great. I think um, people are more scared of them than they should be. And they're just, but they're, they are really common. Um, in fact, the, our household study, uh, you know, there's that, that whole myth or whatever, that whole saying that you're never more than 10 feet away from a spider. Um, I honestly think that's fairly true in most areas yeah. of the world. Um, I would just, agree. They're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. But, you know, that also goes along with the fact that, you know, people think they're always biting and all this stuff, but they're just not. And so the fact that they're around everywhere, but they're not uh, interested in biting people, that's a big message I like to get across because every time somebody wakes up and they have a little red bump, they think a spider's bitten them. And I've been bitten by a spider for real, and you would know if you were bitten by a spider. <laughs> so. Has yeah. anyone done, like, gut content analysis on spiders do you know so that i don't know i i don't know and it's weird because they obviously have a different type of um physiology and and internal biology you know anatomy than insects um but i don't know specifically if anybody's done that um it's hard to say you know because they feed on basically the liquid parts uh you know the spiders basically um they kind of have this combination of like a uh, they'll they'll kind of uh, compact the prey and digest it, and then some will kind of chew it up a little bit and just suck out the juices. Uh, so it's kind of like a slurry, and they really only feed on the liquidy parts, not the hard parts. Um, so I'd be curious if that's actually feasible, but uh, but uh, it probably will be. So if you were to dissect open a spider, how is the internal morphology different? Because it's still, you know an invertebrate, but now I'm like really intrigued because I've definitely never dissected a spider. (laughs) They're weird. I mean, I don't know much about their digestion and because they also have really narrow, it's a lot like a wasp where they have very narrow um, um, 
connection between the abdomen and the, the cephalothorax, the head part. Um, and so they can only really feed on liquids. I don't know what their digestive tract is actually like, uh, but I know they have a lot of weird things that aren't the same as, say, insects. Um, their breathing system is different, uh, of course. They, have, they don't have spiracles. They have uh, book lungs um, mm. and, and uh, some lungs that are kind of paired lungs that have these uh, kind of uh, sheets in them, and that diffuses the oxygen, I think. I don't know if it's connected to the rest of the body or if it just kind of goes around in the body. Um, I don't look much inside of critters, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> except for, you know, for ID. Um, they also have some weird things. Like the, one of the weirdest things that spiders that I learned is that they, um, they don't have, they don't have muscles to, um, to stretch their legs out. They only have muscles to uh, bring their legs toward their body. To stretch their legs out, they use fluid pressure. Wow! And so they so whenever you see a dead spider, that's why all its legs are contracted because the muscles uh, the muscles dried out and contracted, and there was no way for them to kind of stretch them out. It's also another reason why if you poke a spider or or, or a rupture rupture spider, it loses that pressure, and so it can't walk anymore. Um, so it's it's just the it was the weirdest thing I'd ever learned is that. So they have to kind of, That's yeah, they crazy. have to, yep, they have to tense their body to to push fluid into their legs to spread them out, and then they use muscles to bring them back in. Not a, it's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in one millisecond, sort of like pumping out fluid, and the other contracting muscles. That's crazy. I, yeah, I guess, I, and it's yeah, they can be really fast, obviously. So yeah. I guess it works for them, but I I don't know whether that was kind of like an ancestral thing, like they just kind of uh gain you know they 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 um uh inherited it from their ancestors or whether it's just some weird thing i don't know about scorpions either again i you know again there's so many things that we don't know and so many mm. understudy groups and i'm sure somebody knows these things obviously somebody <laughs> knows these but um but yeah they're they're really weird well we better wrap it up because i'll sit here and ask fifty thousand more questions <laughs> about like all the dynamics uh of because you know it's not often, I feel like people with your skill set are very rare. Uh, it's becoming more and more rare that somebody, you can hand something over to somebody and they're not such a specialist, they're more of a generalist and they can tell you uh, what that is. So, yeah. Well, I, I think actually, though, one of the things, one of the benefits of the internet, although uh, it's, it's made me a little jealous lately because, you know, when I was younger, of course, we, we, all this information was in so many different places. Um, but there are a lot of people online now, a lot of young, younger people that are really good at identifying different critters uh, because they know the resources and they've studied a lot of the online things. And so um, there are a lot of young people uh, that are learning these skills uh, just as a kind of um, kind of a side project or just, uh, you know, because they're interested in those things. Um, in fact, um, uh, there's, there's a, uh, an entomologist, I mean, uh, I wouldn't, you know, he's, he wouldn't call himself necessarily an entomologist, but uh, Charlie Eisman up in the uh, New England area, he, uh, he publishes these great papers on leaf mining insects. And he's basically the world expert, at least on in North America, of leaf mining insects. And I think he's a musician and he's never had any formal training, but because he's got such a passion, there's so much out there to, to learn from and so many digital 
photos now, he has become uh, an excellent expert that I actually ask uh, very often if, if for help uh, because he knows a lot of these things. He's observed these things. And really all this stuff, um, you know, I'd have to say, you know, to, um, you know, you ask for some advice. But one thing is that it's also experience is a big part. So when I started my position, I didn't know all the things out there. I, in fact, I wasn't even really into insects and plants. Insects is plant pests. I was mostly studying taxonomy or medical veterinary entomology, things like that. But, um, you know, it's once you start seeing them, if you have a good memory and you, you're, you're really interested in it, that's where it starts to build upon itself. And um, I think, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessarily something that uh, takes a certain type of personality or skill. I think it does in, in some part, but I think it's also just a lot of experience. Well, that's great advice. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Matt. This has been really interesting conversation, very informative about spiders, which I didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll I send like all, all my spider questions to you from now on. <laughs> sure. Now, there's some really good arachnologists out there too. A lot of them on Twitter too. Um, but yeah, we it's it's always been an interest of mine. Um, and in fact, I've wanted to do some projects where we've been trying to do a brown recluse project over the years, and and recluse or not is actually the the Twitter feed is one of the ones we we developed together um but uh, with uh with Catherine scott and a few others um but uh yeah yeah definitely feel free to ask me any questions or um uh yeah and uh now this is fun yeah and, uh, yeah thanks for talking to Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.